Welcome to the Global Missions Inc. podcast. This week's episode features Andy Snoke with a message called A Peculiar People. I want to talk tonight about a subject the Lord has put on my heart, about walking with God, about being a peculiar people, and about making choices. I'm a big one on choices. We have to learn to make good choices. Your life is a result of, of hundreds, thousands of choices. We're going to talk a little bit about what the Bible says about some of these, but we're going to turn first, if you would. Let's go to 1 Peter, the second chapter, uh, the ninth verse. Very simple verse. You've heard this many, many times here. We'll start with this. It says, you are a chosen generation. Peter is writing to us today. You, we, are a chosen generation. It's hard for us to wrap our heads around that. You are a chosen generation. Now, I don't understand how it works. That God reaches down and chooses you. He, he makes a choice. And it's almost got nothing to do with, with what you've done or where you've come from. You are a chosen generation. Then he says a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. And then I like this word here, a peculiar people. That you should show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. A peculiar people, the uh, King James Version uses that term of peculiar people. Years, years ago, Debbie and I used to sing a song in our little local church. We used to hear it. It was called Being a Peculiar Person. And I finally found the lyrics just today. The lyrics, here's some of the lyrics. It says, some of us are quiet, some of us are loud, some of us are grateful, none of us is proud. We are not what we used to be. We are better off by far. And if you haven't guessed by now, I'll tell you who we are. We are peculiar people. We rejoice when things go wrong. We shed tears when we are happy. We sing a glad new song. We are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We are the children of the heavenly king. And if you care to join us, just come along and sing. We're peculiar people. We're strange people, if you will. We're peculiar people. We don't quite fit in the world. And I, I pray to the Lord that we, we never fit. Amen. I want to read you something here about a man, 86 years old, named Polycarp. Go, go with me just a little bit. Let's do a little time travel. I'm going to go back in the past. In the early years of Christianity, the first couple hundred years after Christ was crucified and resurrected, and the church began to grow, and they didn't have things like you and I have today. There's a lot of advantages they didn't have. They didn't have cars. They didn't have planes. They didn't have smartphones. They couldn't text one another. They didn't have a Bible that they could carry. The Bible was still, to a large degree, parchments that people would, would pass from one, one another. And I want to tell you a little bit about the time period. At that time, scholars have studied Roman coins and found a striking similarity between the praises Christians offered in worship of Christ and the adulation or worship of Roman citizens directed towards the reigning emperor. Roman coins would announce the reign of the Caesars with, Hail, Lord of the earth, invincible, power, glory, honor, blessed, great, worthy art thou to inherit the kingdom. 
It's no wonder that the Christians were persecuted. They couldn't, they couldn't fall into that trap of worshiping the emperor. They did not fit. Christian worship and Caesar worship would meet head on. A Christian would never say Caesar is Lord. To the Romans, the Christians seemed utterly intolerant. To the Romans, they looked at Christians and said, you're intolerant. Does that sound familiar? We live in a society today when people, when men call good evil and evil good, and they look at Christianity and they say, you are intolerant because you don't fit into our culture. You don't fit into our philosophy. They say that they were utterly intolerant and insanely stubborn and seemed to be disloyal to Rome. Rome said, you're disloyal. You don't fit in. You're disloyal to us. You won't worship our gods. You won't acknowledge Caesar as Lord. You're intolerant. Had the Christians been willing to burn that tiny pinch of incense and just say formally, Caesar is Lord, that they could have gone on worshiping Christ to their heart's content. If they would have just had two gods and said, I worship Caesar, Caesar is Lord, but I also worship the Lord Jesus Christ, life would have been a lot easier for them. Their refusal to conform to Rome led to a prolonged bloodbath to the uncompromising Christians. God called men and women and boys and girls that would not fit the mold of the world. They wouldn't compromise, even though it cost them their life. Revelation, the second chapter, touches about on the church of the angel of the church in Smyrna, which is an actual city in Turkey. And just a couple short verses Revelation 2.8, And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things saith the Lord, the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them who, who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue or of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of these things which you will suffer. He says to the church of Smyrna, Don't be afraid. You are going to go through sufferings. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, and you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. That was the church in Smyrna. I'm going to talk to you about a guy who came from the church in Smyrna, who literally came from that church. His name was Polycarp. Polycarp was one of the last humans that actually was in contact with one of the original twelve apostles, he died about the year 160 A.D. He was a great man. He was a great writer. There are books written about him. There are books that he has written. So we have a piece of history recorded by him. A couple notes here. Always on the winter side in the Roman Wars, Smyrna, intense loyalty to Rome, resulted in a strong emperor worship cult. In that city, they worshiped the emperor. And this is where Polycarp is from. Fifty years after John's death, Polycarp, the pastor of the church, the leader, the shepherd in Smyrna, was burned alive at the age of 86 for refusing to worship Caesar. 
Now I'm actually going to read you some, some from the book of the martyrdom of Polycarp. This is text taken from about the year 160, talking a little bit about Polycarp. And this is from eyewitnesses, and I'll, I'll make this brief. Polycarp was an older man. He was a senior citizen. He was about, he was at least 86 years old. Now keep in mind, 86 years old, 86 years old at that time was really old. It's senior today, but in that day, men lived to be about 40 or 50. And this is, he served as a teacher and a pastor and a church leader. We are writing, I'm reading you directly from a translation here, brothers, with an account of the martyrs, especially the blessed Polycarp, whose death brought to the persecution, brought to persecution to a close. Almost all the events that led up to it revealed, reveal it to be another martyrdom in the divine pattern that we see in the gospel. For he waited for his betrayal, just like the Lord did. Before that, there was a guy named Germanicus, and all that the devil attempted, he failed, thanks be to God. The heroic Germanicus encouraged the weak by his own endurance and fought bravely with the wild animals. When the proconsul of Rome tried to persuade him to cooperate for the sake of his own youth, he drew the wild beast towards himself and provoked it in order to escape more quickly from this wicked world. And then, and then the spectators yelled, down with the atheists. Now keep in mind, this is interesting in this writing, an atheist was someone that didn't believe in the Roman gods. Those were the atheists. So they called out, down with the atheists, and they said, get Polycarp. They killed this Germanius, and they said, let's get Polycarp. When he heard about, the, about this, the redoubtable Polycarp was not in the least upset. He was happy to stay in the city, but eventually was persuaded to leave. He went to friends in the nearby country where, as usual, he spent the whole time, day and night, in prayer for all the people and for the churches throughout the world. He was a man of prayer. He heard there was a great persecution. He heard that people were dying for the sake of the cross, that they were dying for the sake of not renouncing Jesus Christ. People were dying for taking a stand when they could so easily avoid being put to death. So he would spend nights in prayer, praying on behalf of the church. Three days before he was arrested, while he was praying, he had a vision uh, on the pillow of his bed that he was in flames. And he said prophetically to those who were with him, I will be burnt alive. Those who were looking for him were coming near, so he left for another house. They immediately followed him, and when they could not find him, they seized two young men from his own household and tortured them into confession. Where's Polycarp, they said. The sheriff called Herod, who was impatient to bring Polycarp to the stadium, so that night he might fulfill a special role to share the sufferings of Christ, while those who betrayed him will be punished like Judas. The arrest. The police and the horsemen came with the young man at supper time on the Friday with their usual weapons as if coming out against the robber. Here's this, here's this Polycarp. His only crime is he's servant of God that's not the gods of Rome. That's his only crime. But he wouldn't bend. He wouldn't bend to the culture of the day. So an army is sent towards him, one the police and horsemen. That evening they found him lying down in the upper room of a cottage. He could escape. But he refused. He said, God's will be done. When he heard that they had come, he went down and he spoke with them. They were amazed, the police and the horsemen, they were amazed at his age and his steadfastness. 
And some of them said, why did we even so much, why are we even troubling ourselves to capture this guy? He's no threat to Rome. He's an old man. Why are we even doing this? Immediately, Polycarp did the thing that Christians do. He called for food and drink to be given to those that had come to arrest him, to take him, to to kill him. They brought in food and drink, and then he said he immediately called for food and drink, and he asked for an hour to pray uninterrupted. He said, I'll give you food and drink, and I'll go with you, but let me have time to pray. And he prayed. They agreed, and he stood and he prayed, so full of the grace of God that he could not stop for two hours. The men were astounded, and many of them regretted coming to arrest such a godly and venerable old man. As Polycarp was being taken into the arena, a voice came to him from heaven saying, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. Be a man. No one saw who had spoken, but our brothers who were there heard the voice. When the crowd heard that Polycarp had been captured, there was an uproar. The proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On hearing that, he, he was. He tried to persuade him to apostatize. The proconsul did. He says, I want to have respect for your old age. Just swear by the fortune of Caesar. Just repent and say down with the Christians. That's all you got to do, Polycarp. I respect your old age. All you got to do is bend the rules a little bit. Just say down with the Christians. And that you believe down with the atheists, which is the word they use, which meant those that followed uh, the false gods. And Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen. The crowds were yelling uh, in the stadiums and gesturing towards them. He said, this is quote, down with the atheist. He spoke to the crowd. He was saying, you're the atheist. You're the ones following the false gods. This enraged them. Swear, urged the proconsul, reproach Christ, reproach him, and I'll set you free. That's all you got to do. Just renounce Christ. Just turn your back on your beliefs. Just bend the rules a little bit. Just blend in with the culture, and we will set you free. Polycarp is quoted as saying, 86 years have I served him, Polycarp declared, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? He's saying, how can I turn my back on my Lord and my king and my savior and my everything for the sake of serving Rome? No compromise. There's no compromising. I was thinking before I read of this of the heroes we have today, and I don't know who they are. You, you young people recognize some of these names. To me, Uh, Polycarp, and I'm going to tell you more about him, he was a hero. He was a hero of faith. He took a stand. Kids go to movies nowadays and they watch the the heroes or the Avengers or the X-Men or or the Fantastic Four or the Guardians of the Galaxy or Spider-Man or Captain America or Iron Man or Thor or the Hulk or Wolverine or maybe any of these other names. They're the heroes of the day. Fictitious fake characters, this is a real hero. This is a man who took a stand. The proconsul says, I have wild animals here. Very common, they would throw them to the wild animals and they would be killed. The proconsul said, I have wild animals here. I'll throw you to them. 
if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. He says, I won't repent. I can't turn from something good to turn to something evil. I want you to think of that. Every time you're tempted to fit in, say to yourself, I can't turn from something that's good and righteous to something that is evil. And then he goes on to say, I like this. If you despise the animals, the proconsul said, I will have you burned. Listen to this. Polycarp replied, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and then is extinguished. You know nothing of the fire and of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Think about that for a minute. He says, You're, you're threatening me. To be burned at the stake, I will suffer for one hour and the fire will be over. But you, my friend, pro-counsel, unless you repent of your sins, you're looking at eternal damnation. That's something we don't talk about a lot. That hasn't been the emphasis of our message. But I don't want to say this. I want to say it respectfully. We need to be afraid of hell. It's not a good place. We don't want it for anybody. And we don't even fully understand the judgments of God, how severe they can be. His grace is wonderful and great, and his judgments are severe. But there is a place of judgment. There is a place of payment for sins. If your name is not written in the book of life, you've got a great price to pay. If your name is not written in the book of life. And I I hope that not one person leaves this room tonight without knowing your name is written in the book of life. From time to time, we need to have a little fear of hell and a little fear of the judgments of God. My dad was telling me, my dad's 91 years old, he goes to the uh, Church of the Brethren, a good church. Now, they don't quote a lot of scriptures. They don't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They don't have uh, uh, the, the infilling or the gifts of the Spirit or prophecy or any of these things that we enjoy. Just a real main line, a good church full of good people. My dad can't quote to you scriptures left and right, but he grew up in a Christian home. And he told me once years ago, he said when he was a young man, he said he didn't, he didn't go out drinking like the kids in his high school. He didn't sleep around. He didn't, didn't do the things that the other kids were doing like they do in all generations for a simple reason. Because to him, those people that did those things, went to hell. Now, think of it. That sounds pretty basic, but here's what got me. What saved my dad? The fear of God. The fear of judgment. And every now and then, folks, I think we need to have a little bit of fear. A little bit of healthy respect. Not not being afraid that God is going to hit you with a hammer, but walk right. Make right choices before God. One of the brethren, before I read on here, we're, we have these little prayer meetings and discuss many things. And one of the brethren said, and I appreciate it, he says, you know, Jesus always pronounced woes. Woe to the Pharisees for this and that and, and all the things they were doing wrong. He would, and, and on Israel and Jerusalem, woe, woe to them and this and that. And he says, you know, I wonder, he said, if we need to be pronouncing more woes today. We don't pronounce a lot of woes, so to speak. And I thought to myself, it's not, not entirely true. I've been 
following this brother's advice, and in the morning I get up and I go, whoa, is my back, and whoa, is my knees, and whoa, is my neck. That's a little side note there. But there, there is a place to hear of the judgments of God. So they take Polycarp, and they, it, was, it was all done in the time it takes to tell the crowd collected wood and bundles of sticks in the shops and public baths. The Jews, as usual, were keen to help. When the pile was ready, Polycarp took off his outer clothes, undid his belt. He walked to the fire. They were going to nail him to the stick so that when they set the fire on, on fire that he wouldn't, wouldn't try to run escape it. And he told them, he actually told them, leave me, quote, leave me as I am, for he that gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me not to struggle without the help of your nails. They set the fire. It caught on fire, and, and witnesses, according to the writings anyway in history, they said that when the fire burned, it smelled like bread, like the bacon of bread. And he became a martyr. He paid a price. I want to go to, you, I want to, go to the 12th chapter of Romans and read a scripture that you're very, very familiar with. We need to take a stand against the culture the, the mold of the world. We're all subjected to all kinds of pressure all around us to try to fit in. And I want to say something. You'll never fit in with the culture of the world. Uh, I should say it differently. I hope, I hope you never fit in. Because if you do, you turn the wrong direction. You went the wrong way. I want to read the 12th chapter of Roman, Romans, uh, first verse. I'm going to read this one from a translation called The Message. And it goes like this. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work, you're walking around life. And place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God's, God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Let me read that part again. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. You're going to be different. You're going to be like Polycarp. You're not going to fit. I, Debbie got me this book about the history of the church. And I'm only about 300 years into it, the year 2nd and 3rd century. But the Christians of that day, as I started off on this talk, they were so different, no wonder they were hated. The, those that laid bricks, the masons, wouldn't build buildings for idols, so they would be an employee because they wouldn't do it. They had a lot of odd traits because they wouldn't fit in with the culture. There's some interesting things I thought was interesting in the 1st century, 1st hundred years, that set the Christians apart. That people notice that it's been written in different places. One of the things that they did that they thought was odd, the Christians had a love for the scriptures. Now this is before they had a Bible like we do. But they would copy scriptures and, and share it with family. And they, they loved the scriptures. The other thing they did that was interesting, very interesting in the first hundred years, people would marvel, emperors would marvel that Christians would travel great distances to be with other Christians. Let me say that again. They marveled that Christians in the first century would travel great distances at, at peril of life and limb to be with other Christians. Does any of that sound familiar? 
Here we are, North Battle from all, from all over the country, North America, just like they did in the first century. The other thing that they marveled at was these people, this was unusual. Emperors would marvel that the Christians actually passionately loved one another. This is a time frame. If you don't have Christ in your heart, you don't have love for your fellow men. And the Romans didn't have love for the fellow men. And they would notice that these Christians would travel great distances and they genuinely loved one another. The other thing that they did that made them stick out was they genuinely loved the poor. They would reach out to the poor and try to help the poor. They were amazed by that. The first hundred years or so, the gospel was called a poor man's gospel because for some reason, the church Christianity was spreading among women. God bless you, women. The women were some of the first ones to pick up on the gospel and to believe it and to share it. Slaves and Roman soldiers were the first ones to really receive the gospel. The aristocrats, the upper class, it took them a long time to receive it. They were too good. But those that the world looked at that were lower on the scale, scale, the social scale, they were the first ones to receive it. That was in the first century. He says, don't be so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God and you'll be changed from the inside out. That's my message tonight is, is be changed from the inside out. I'm going to read from another translation, the same verse here. Beloved friends, what should, we, what should be our proper response to God's marvelous mercies? To surrender yourselves to God, to be a sacred living sacrifice, and live in holiness, experiencing all the delights of his heart. For this becomes your genuine expression of worship. And here's this verse again in another translation. Stop imitating the ideals and opinions of the culture around you. There it is again. Just a different translation. Don't Imitate the ideals and opinions of the culture around you, but be inwardly transformed by the Holy Spirit through a total reformation of how you think. Let the Lord change the way that you think, your, your thinking processes. I'm going to jump over to a verse here in Acts, the 17th chapter, a little bit here. Uh, it talks about, excuse me, wrong verse. Acts, the 17th chapter. Paul is in Athens here. He's in the city of Ephesus, or, uh, and um, he's at the uh, Athens. Excuse me. He's in Athens, right by by the Areopagus. I can't pronounce that properly. This is a two billion dollar building that where they worship all these gods, different gods. And Paul was out on a little outcrop of rocks called Mars Hill. And they were told they heard that he was peddling. They called him a babbler. They was peddling some new ideas. And the Athenians, the smartest people in the world at that time, this is where, this is the center of medicine, this is the center of philosophy, this is the center of literature, this is the center of sculptures and artists. Uh, tremendous things came from the city of Athens. This is the best of the best of the best of the entire world right there. And this is where Paul is. And Paul goes to them to preach the gospel. And they say, we want to hear this gospel. We, we, there's a particular place because these people all day long, all they did was they wanted to hear something new. So he comes with a strange gospel, something strange. So they invite him 
to speak to him. So he goes, and I, I love the story, and I won't read all the scriptures, but he goes and he meets him on, on Mars Hill, this outcropping of rocks. And right behind it is Argopolis here. It's just beautiful, $2 billion today. It'd be $2 billion up above them where they served all these other gods. And we've been there. Brother Matthew was there and Cecilia. We stood there on those rocks where the Apostle Paul stood. And we're standing there on those rocks, which I thought was another story in itself. We went to Athens to see the beauty of Athens. I wanted to go to Mars Hill, which is nothing but a bunch of rocks. So that's where Paul was. Paul stood there on those rocks. And he preached to them. And he preached this perfect speech. He gave this great speech. He talked about, you know, you have this inscription I saw that said to the unknown God. And I, I've come to introduce him to you. You guys are following this Athenian culture. I want to make you aware of a new culture, the culture of Jesus Christ, who was, who was crucified for your sins and buried and resurrected and came to forgive sins. The unknown God up there on that hill that you're serving, I want to introduce the real one to you. He gave this great speech. Greatest men and women on the face of the earth. The Athenians. And I get a kick out of it. What do they do? What do the Athenians did? Do they rejected that gospel? They completely rejected what Paul said. They wouldn't accept it. So they 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 rejected him. So Paul, think about that for a minute. He's rejected by the smartest people in the world, the aristocrats. They couldn't accept it. They fit in the culture. They, they didn't say this, but they might have been thinking this. We're hearing of this new gospel that Paul is bringing. That our sins, we actually have a thing called sins. And they need to be forgiven. And we need to live differently. And we need to serve a one king, the new king. He's teaching something brand new. But we can't give up our culture. Look at us. Look at the gods up there. Look at our building here. The first marathon took place in Athens. Look at the track. Look at the theaters that we built. Look, we are a great people. We can't give that up. We can't give up the culture of Athens, the culture of Greece to serve this new God that Paul talks about. So they rejected Paul. So you know what Paul did? About 50 miles away was this little city called Corinth. It was full of drunkards. It was full of prostitutes. It was full of gamblers, full of sailors. Had every problem in the world was right there in Corinth. So Paul goes to Corinth. Uh, I think it was uh, uh, Nat this morning was talking about Corinth a little bit, how how when they came to have their Lord's Supper, some of them would get drunk and some would eat too much. Everything they did was an excess. Well, the reason it was is because they were Corinth. That's what they did. It was the Las Vegas of that time. Everything was in excess. So he goes to Corinth and he preaches the gospel to these drunkards, alcoholics, prostitutes, gamblers, the, 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 the lowest of the low in Corinth. And what did they do? They accepted the gospel. What's interesting, Athens is nothing now but ruins. Nothing but ruins. There is no book in the New Testament called the Book of the Athenians. But there is a 1 Corinthians and a 2 Corinthians and Paul makes reference to a third Corinthians that we don't have. There's at least three books written to the Corinthians. He went to them. 
And he wrote to them, and he said, You see your calling, brethren, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And, and literally, he just said this because he just came from Athens where the mighty and the noble were there, and the wise, and they rejected the message. He says, You see, brethren, not many of them, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, they're called, but... but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. He comes to them and I can almost hear them thinking there's hope for us. Because we're way down at the bottom. When you compare us to Athens, they're way up here. We're way down here. And he's telling us that God is calling us. He's calling out a church and we can be part of that church. We can be the bricks part of that church. That's how God moves. That's how he works. The message is don't fit into the culture of the world. There's many things we could talk about, which I'm not. Because I always end up getting in hot water when I do. But there's all kinds of things that we could just discuss that's in, in the culture today. Crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. Not stuff that's a little questionable. Crazy stuff. You go to university, you, you're going to hear good stuff, and you're going to hear garbage. You're going to hear good stuff, one plus one equals two, and you're going to hear the philosophy of the world, which is nothing but a twisted message from, from Satan himself to confuse you. It is so wild. It's unbelievable. It's so unbelievable. And the world from the highest levels of government, the highest levels of academia, uh, in employment status, many places, this, this culture is forced on you to comply. Be like us. Be like the Romans. Just compromise and say that you believe this too. You can believe your God, but believe this garbage as well. And this is where we don't become radical, but we say, no, not me. That's not for me. I'm not compromising. I know right from wrong. I know there's a heaven. I also know there's a hell. And I also know I made my choice. And you're not changing my mind. There's a place where we have to put off the culture of the world. Sometimes I've wondered some of the things that we hear the days of Polycarp are pretty dark, and they're pretty dark today, but we haven't been put to death. They are in some places of the world, though, for taking a stand for the Lord. But I've often wondered, how do some of these things happen? And I don't know. I don't know if this is truth. But in First Thessalonians, it says this, Second Thessalonians, talking about the last days, the darkness is coming, false prophet, antichrist. And then the Lord makes this little statement. Because of their disbelief, Because of the disbelief of the world in general, he says, God will send them strong delusion that they would believe a lie. And I've often wondered, have we entered into the time period when the the spirit of the false prophet is becoming so prevalent all around us that God to a degree said, okay, if you're going to believe that, I'm going to let you believe a lie. Because to those that walk with God, it is so evident some of the things that you're hearing are lies. There's no way to candy coat it. They're lies. 
I want to encourage you, when God speaks to you, walk with him. I want to touch on another thing. I hope all of you young people, or most of you young people, get married. I do. I hope that you do. And I'm, going to, I'm praying for you young people. You're the future of the world, of the church and the world. I don't want to talk about that for just a minute here. I want to say this to boys and girls, teenagers. Don't compromise. Can I say that? Don't compromise. Get a good marriage. Find a good husband. Find a good wife. Don't compromise. Boyfriends do not have husband privileges. Girlfriends do not have wife privileges. There are some things that God has reserved for marriage, for marriage and only there. Don't compromise, please. Wait. God has given the gift of intimacy in a marriage. There's nothing like it. No one can give that to you. And that's the only place that it belongs is in marriage. I often thought it might sound silly to you, but you get married. People come to the wedding. They came to our wedding. Some people gave a toaster. Someone else gave a toaster. (laughs) That's the old days. You get two toasters at a wedding, your wedding night. And others brought gifts. And then God gave a gift of intimacy that not anybody else could give. Only for our home and our marriage. God has that for you. Don't compromise. I'm going to tell you how to meet somebody. There's no, there's no magical way to do this. I'm going to share a couple of my, our, our experiences just very briefly in dating. First thing we did, first thing I did, first thing my wife did, I prayed in my heart, Lord, I had a list of things that I thought I needed. But I prayed, Lord, please send me a cute Christian girlfriend. I, I threw cute in there. Please send me a cute, pretty Christian girlfriend. But I actually prayed. That's the first step. First step. Ask God. Ask God. Lord, I, I want a spouse. If you will, give me a spouse. Send me somebody. Ask God about it. Ask the Lord about it. Second thing, and there's different ways of doing this. You have to, you have to open your eyes up. And you look around. And you look at girls. You look at guys. And the next thing you do is you ask them out. I know there's different ways of doing it. Don't be afraid when someone says, no, I'm not going to go out with you. You're not being rejected. The time's just not right. I, I asked this girl out. I didn't date that many girls. I remember I asked one girl out. I said, um, would you like to go on a date Saturday night? She said, well, I think I'm going to have a headache Saturday night. <laughs> So don't be don't feel bad if they say if they say no. I had three younger brothers, so I didn't know much about dating because they were younger than me, and I asked them what I was doing wrong. I said, What how should I behave on a date? And they said, Just don't be yourself. <laughs> I thought it was supposed to be yourself, but nevertheless. So I, I asked a couple girls out, and it's okay if it doesn't work out. Most of the things won't work out. And then God gave me a, a, a Christian girlfriend, and I had a list, of, I had a, a list, small list, of requirements. Number one, pretty. Maybe I shouldn't put it at the top of the list, but it's at the top of the list. Christian, had to come to my church, 
had to be filled with the Spirit. Had four things. That was my checklist. So I met this pretty girl, Debbie, my wife, and our, our first date, I asked God about it, I prayed about it. I didn't have anything flashy to show her. I had a Honda 750 four-cylinder. So our first date was on my Honda 750. And I still remember it. I pulled up, I was so proud of it. I had a king-queen seat, and it goes like this, and on the back, a little spot for her to sit. And I, I said, this is my, my Honda 750. Would you like to go for a ride on my motorcycle? Oh, yes, I would, you know. She, she, so she got on it. And the other thing I realized about taking my motorcycle instead of my car is when she gets on the back, she has to put her arms around me. So there's no seat belt. So, whoa, this is really good. So our first date was on a Honda 750. And we wouldn't, we never went places that cost money. She, uh, she's as cheap as I am. And I say that in a good way. We would go to my parents' house. We would go to her parents' house. We went to Bible studies. We did cheap stuff. Every now and then we would go out to eat and order a water, not a coffee, because water is free. We did all the tricks in the world. And as time went, but I told her, I told her early on, I said, I go to a church, it's a little bitty church, there's six of us here, and yeah, we meet in the living room, and we believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and we even have prophecy in our church, you can read about that in 1 Corinthians 14, and and when it's right, when you feel comfortable, I'm not, I want you to tell me when you're comfortable, I would like you to come to church with me. And you know what? She didn't say, she didn't say yes. She didn't say yes right away, I should say. But I wanted her to know that it was important that we worship together. And when you're comfortable, you come with me. And we went on a few dates, and one day she says, I think I'm ready to go to your church. So she came with me to church, and I was a little worried. And she came, and someone prophesied, and she about fell off the couch when she heard prophecy. But she came every Sunday, and still is, (laughs) since that day. And I got my little check mark. Okay, pretty, click, Christian, click, coming to my church, click. And then we went to Hidden Acres, and she was filled with the Spirit. That was the fourth one. And then after that, I asked her to marry me. But there's some lessons there. Here's what I want to say. You young people, number number one, talk to God about it. Ask God for a mate. Seek the Lord about it. Number two, start talking to other people. If they say no, that's okay. Ask somebody else. If it's someone else that's not, if it's someone out there, my wife wasn't part of the church, I wasn't either to start with. Tell them you want them to be a part of your church, that that's really important to you. They need to know that's important to you. Also need to know what your moral standards are right up front. No compromising your moral standards. But invite them to church. Don't think in your mind, well, they're going to be scared away because of the way we worship. Well, if they are, that's okay. But don't be afraid. Invite them to church. Let the Lord do the work. Let the Lord do the work. God has many wonderful things in store for us. And it's important to do things properly in the right way. I'm winding down already. I thought I was going to take more time than this. But I'm going to say a prayer for all of you because... And I want to encourage all of us, particularly the young people, we live in a time period where things are real dicey. Things are difficult. 
There's a lot of pressures out there, and there's going to be more pressure as time goes on to fit in with the culture that's surrounding you. I want you to learn to say like Polycarp, no, no, no matter what the price, I'm not going to fit. I walk differently. We're peculiar people. We're going to be different. We're going to care, we're going to kindly, we're going to call sin, sin. If it's evil, it's evil. That's the way it is. Call sin, sin. Don't fall for it. And I want to encourage you to renew your walk with God. Make it a daily point to walk with God, to walk properly and uprightly for the Lord, for the Lord. And you young people, I want you to start praying about who you date. Start praying about who you want to date, who your, who your mate should be for, the, for your, for all of your life. Pray about that and ask God to directly to guide you. Not everybody gets married, but most people do. And we want you simply to marry that right person. Heavenly Father, I thank you tonight for the opportunity to gather together and share in a few scriptures. And we pray that you help us to not compromise. We know that we are pressed on all sides by the culture of the world, by the enemy of our soul. We pray that you give us the strength and intuition to know what's right and know what's wrong and to make the right choices that stand wrong. Lord, I pray for particularly all the young people that are here. I pray for every one of them, every one of them, that you will help them to walk with you, to walk with you, to have their names written in the book of life and to make good choices for the rest of their life. And we look to you, dear Lord, as this week unfolds, if there are those that need to be filled with the Spirit, that an opportunity will be given to be filled with the Spirit. Bless our young people and all of our people here, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like more information about the moving of God's Spirit or resources for your spiritual life, please visit our website at www.globalmissionsinc.org.